I did not realize that. Book of Judges, chapter 3. We're going to cover chapters 3, 4, and 5 this morning. So I'm going to ask that you bear with me because I've never preached like this before. It's going to be a different experience for me. Okay, so follow along with me and let's, let's do the best we can with this. If you know me very well, here's one thing you know about me. I enjoy any, all, and every superhero movie, comic book, graphic novel that I can get my hands on. I don't understand why some people are like, no, you have to love Marvel and hate DC, or why you have to love DC and hate Marvel. I just don't get it. I don't get bashing one another because why choose one when you can have both? And maybe that's one of the reasons why I love the book of Judges. Maybe that's why it appeals to me, because it's like a gritty superhero novel or a gritty superhero movie. You've got people who are under oppression, and then a hero or several heroes step forward to save the people, to deliver them from their enemies. And then you've got some pretty amazing stories and and of course, plenty of violence and plenty of gore as well. And we're going to see some of that in our story this morning. So brace yourselves now. But here's my question. Is that what the book of Judges is really about? Is it about a series of heroes that step up and save Israel in their time of need? Because it seems to me that that's the way it's been taught to me from the time I was a child. And it seems to me that's the way it's been taught in many churches for many years. Now, you may be familiar with some of these stories, but maybe not all of them. There's some, there's some pretty dark stuff in the book of Judges. But I think it's more than just a series of snapshots uh, showing these highlights of men and women who stepped up to save Israel. I think there's a larger story that's taking place here, a meta-narrative that connects each of these smaller stories together in one large story that paints a picture. So as we go through this this morning, we're going to look at three of those mini narratives, and we're going to see how that pulling out and seeing those three together gives us a better visual picture of the meta narrative together. So we're going to see how these stories of the first three major judges, notice I said major because we are going to skip one, how they're all connected under one main theme. But before we get into it, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, I thank you for the privilege that I have to bring your word to your people this morning. The Lord, I pray that your word would go out and that it would be proclaimed in faithfulness and in truth and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And Lord, that you and I would partner together, that you would lead me and guide me to say every word correctly, to say exactly what you want everyone to hear. Lord, that it would be powerful, that it would move us in our hearts, move us in our minds. And Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who has not placed their faith and trust in Christ Jesus, they would be stirred to do so this morning. I pray in Jesus' holy and precious name, by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Let's begin by looking at verse number 7. Judges chapter 3. The Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They forgot their God and worshipped the Baals and Asherahs. 
the Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he sold them to the Cushonite Rishathing, king of Aram Naharim. And the Israelites served him eight years. The Israelites then cried out to the Lord, so the Lord raised up Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's youngest brother, as a deliverer to save the Israelites. The Spirit of the Lord came on him, and he judged Israel. Othniel went out to battle, and the Lord handed over Cushan Rithiam, king of Aram, to him, so that Othniel overpowered him. Then the land was peaceful forty years, and Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. So let's first kind of break down the story of Othniel. Realize we have two more stories to get through, so we're going to go through this fairly quickly. Now, it didn't take Israel long from the time they entered into the land of Canaan to abandon the worship of Yahweh and follow after the gods of the Canaanites around them, the Baal and Asherah. We see that this took place during the very first generation of people in the land. How do we know that? Well, because Othniel, we were introduced to in chapter 1, and we're going to come back and talk more about him in just a moment, but within a generation of entering this promised land, Israel had forgotten God and turned to the ways of the world around them, and because they had turned away from God, God brought judgment upon them. He sentenced them to be overtaken by the Canaanites. And they were overtaken and enslaved for eight years. But then when Israel cried out to God, he had mercy on them. And Othniel, from chapter 1, comes back into the picture. We look back at chapter 1. Othniel was introduced to us as a brave man. He was the one who went and captured Debir for his uncle, Caleb. Do you remember Caleb? Do you remember who Caleb was? Remember when they first tried to go into the promised land, there were two spies out of the twelve who said, with the Lord's power we can overtake these people. One of those was Joshua, who had led, and we saw last year, or last year, last week, rather, we saw last week, that he had led Israel, and then he had, at this point he had died. And that's how the book of Judges opened. But Caleb still lived. And Caleb had been faithful to Yahweh. And Othniel was his nephew. Not only was he his nephew, he was also his son-in-law, which is kind of messed up in itself, but it is what it is. But not much is said about Othniel's character overall in this passage but in the previous passage, he was described as being a noble character. The implication is that he followed God, much like his father-in-law, Caleb. And so God raised Othniel up and empowered him by his spirit to defeat the Amorites and to bring peace to Israel for a time. But that peace was temporary. It lasted approximately 40 years. And that 40 years idea is the idea of one generation. Approximately 40 years is considered a generation. So for one generation, in this one generation, they had abandoned God. When they had been faithful to God coming into the land, they had defeated so many. But within that one generation, they had turned away from God. 
And then they had been delivered by Othniel, and they returned to God, and that generation served him. And we see this pattern established that we're going to see over and over and over in the book of Judges. Israel abandons God. God judges them. Punishment comes upon them. They repent of their sin. God raises up a deliverer, and that deliverer brings temporary peace to the land, and that peace was 40 years. But what happens when the next generation rose up? Well, let's look at the story of Ehud. The story of Ehud is probably one of my favorite books, or one of my favorite stories in the book of Judges, and possibly one of my favorite stories in the book of the Bible, period. And it is partly because I'm sarcastic, and it's written in a satirical style. But I'll point out some things as we go through it. But let's notice where the story begins in verse 12. The Israelites, again, did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel, because they had done what was evil in the Lord's sight. And after Eglon convinced the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join forces with him, he attacked and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms, that is Jericho, this, and we'll stop there. So the next generation of Israel also followed the sins of their fathers. They, they abandoned God. They served idols. And so God allowed the Moabites to come and overtake them. And interestingly, the king's name is Eglon, which means nothing to us. It's just a weird name. But the the term that's used, the Hebrew term, is similar to the, the word used for round or rotund. So in other words, and we find out this later, that he is indeed a very fat man. So as you read this, the implication that we're getting here is Eglon is both fat, lazy, and stupid. Okay, so keep this in mind as we're reading this. And let's continue reading in verse 14. The Israelites served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord. He raised up Ehud, son of Gera, a left-handed Benjaminite, as a deliverer for them. The Israelites sent him to Eglon, king of Moab, with tribute money. So this time, instead of eight years before they go, oh, we messed up and we need to repent and turn back to God, it took them 18 years before they returned to God and said, we have messed up. And there's something to be said there, because there's this greater period of time, and we're going to see this as we go on, the period of time for repentance gets longer and longer. But eventually they called out to God for mercy, and so God granted his mercy to them in the person of Ehud the Benjaminite. And interestingly, Benjamin means son of the right hand, right? But what do we learn about Ehud? He's left-handed. Okay, so many people, many scholars think that uh, maybe Ehud had been physically disabled in his right hand and was not able to use it. Some others say that maybe they were more uh, ambidextrous, able to use both, but most believe he was disabled in his right hand. 
and the right hand is considered the strong hand. So if his strong hand is absent or weak, then all he's left with is his left, left hand. And if this is the case, then Ehud would not have been expected to be a great leader. He would not have been expected to be a militarily capable person, yet he is the one selected to deliver tribute because they were enslaved to the Moabites. They had to go and pay them. So here's what we find in verse 16. Ehud made himself a double-edged sword that was 18 inches long. He strapped it to his right thigh under his clothes and brought the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who once again says he was an extremely fat man. So unknown to anybody, Ehud had made this dagger approximately 18 inches long, double-bladed, so it's perfect for a stabbing attack rather than a slashing attack. So he had intentionality here. He had a plan, and he concealed it on his right side, which ideally, as a military guy, if you have somebody coming in to look at to, to greet your leader, you're going to check every side. But they didn't expect that a left-handed disabled person would have a weapon on his right side because normally you'd carry it on your left side so you could draw your sword out. But he concealed it on his right side. No one expected that. And we have now set the scene for what's about to happen. So let's read from 18 through 25. When Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he dismissed the people who had carried it. At the carved images near Gilgal, he returned and said to the king, King Eglon, I have a secret message for you. And the king called for silence. All of his attendants left. Then Ehud approached him while he was sitting alone in the room upstairs where it was cool. And Ehud said, I have a word from God for you. And the king stood up from his throne. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into Eglon's belly. And even the handle went in after the blade, and Eglon's fat closed in over it, so that Ehud did not withdraw the sword from his belly, and Eglon's insides came out. Great Bible story, right? Ehud escaped by way of the porch, closing and locking the door of the upstairs room behind him. Ehud was gone when Eglon's servants came in. They looked and found the doors of the upstairs room locked and thought the king was relieving himself in the cool room. The servants waited until they became worried and saw that he had not opened the door of the upstairs room. So they took the key and opened the doors, and there was their lord lying dead on the floor. Man, what a great bedtime story. Let's, let's read this to our children before we go to bed, right? Now, when I read this as someone with a military background, I can't think of how stupid the Moabites seem to be. They, they didn't check Ehud for a weapon at all, or at least didn't check his right side. The king's attendants, when he said, I want silence, they left the room, leaving the king alone with a stranger from this land who had been conquered by him. And the king, being eager to hear this secret and divine message from Ehud, stands up from his throne. So instead of being you know, squashed flat and a smaller target, he stands up to make himself a bigger target. So Ehud stabs him. 
And then after Ehud had killed the king, he locked the throne room. And in the back of the throne room at these times, there was a bathroom in there. And so when Ehud had stabbed Eglon, it says that he had punctured his intestines. And so guess what smells when you puncture someone's intestines? Yeah, it smells like poop. So he locked the door. He went out another way. The attendants come to check on the king. The door is locked, but they smell the smell of poop. And so they think, oh, he's in the bathroom taking care of business. So we're just going to leave him alone. And so then they wait and wait and wait to the point they're like, okay, this is embarrassing. Let's go check on the king. So they have to go find the key to unlock the door. And then they go into the room and there dead on the floor is their king. They allowed Ehud plenty of time to escape. And you think, how stupid can people be? Right? But the implication here is actually an injunction against Israel. Because it's saying, look at how stupid the Moabites are. Look at how dumb they act. Yet, these are the people who have overtaken you. The implication there is, you're dumber and lazier than the Moabites because they were able to conquer you. And why is this? Why was Moabite able to take them over? Well, it's because God had allowed this to happen. This is a demonstration of God's power using weakness to overtake the strong. There's, there's an injunction here that the Israelites were dumb. They were stupid to leave the worship of the powerful and almighty God to go after these weak, foolish idols. But that's what they did. And once again, they cried out to the Lord. He raised up a deliverer. And he comes and, and slays the king. And then he leads, he gathers the people together, leads them into battle. They overtake them, overtake Moab. Killed all of them. And then once again, there's peace in Israel. But notice what it says in verse 30. Moab became subject to Israel that day, and the land was peaceful for 80 years. So for two generations now, the Israelites were faithful. But then we go to chapter 4. We see the story of the three. The story of the three. I'll explain more about why that's important in just a moment. But let's look at verses 1, 2, and 3. The Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud had died. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jobin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his forces was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth of nations. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord because Jobin had 900 iron chariots and he harshly oppressed them for 20 years. So, after having two generations of peace with God, again, the Israelites turned away from God to worship these idols. So, again, God brought punishment upon them. He allowed the Canaanite king to conquer them. And this time they were oppressed for 20 years before they called out to God. And this time we have a story that's longer, and it reads a bit differently. Because we find 
But this time, God didn't exactly raise up a judge like he had the, like it says the other two times. But instead, we find this woman, and her name is Deborah. And it says that she was a prophetess who judged the people of Israel underneath a tree out by the river. This woman, Deborah, who maintained her loyalty to Yahweh in the midst of a corrupted generation who brings godly wisdom to the people from all over Israel to settle their disputes. And this time, Deborah is not a military commander, but she is a prophet or prophetess. And so she speaks for God, and she calls for a military commander and a man named Barak. Not Obama, just Barak. She says to him in verse 6 that she summoned Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh and Naphtali and said to him, Hasn't the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, deploy the troops on Mount Tabor and take with you 10,000 men from the Naphtalites and Zebulonites, the two tribes of Israel. Then I will lure Sisera commander of Jobin's army, his chariots and his infantry at the Wadi Kishon, the river, to fight against you, and I will hand him over to you. And then we see this interesting response from Barak, verses 8 and 9. Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Deborah responds, I will gladly go with you, but you will receive no honor on the road you're about to take because the Lord will sell Sisera to a woman. So Deborah got up and went with Barak to Kadesh. Now, I want to take a moment and pause here because we need to determine what's going on. Because the way I've always heard this and the way that I've always read this is that Barak was being cowardly that he was afraid to go to battle without Deborah's support, and this thereby showed a lack of faith in God on Barak's part. So because of his lack of faith, then Barak would not get the glory, but that it would go to a woman who would slay his enemy. How scandalous that would be for a woman to get the glory. That's the way I've always heard it. But I don't think that's what's happening here. As I've spent time studying this passage and reading from commentators and reading other passages of Scripture, I don't think that's an accurate assessment of the situation. I think what we have, because we see that later in the Bible, the Barak is listed as a hero of Israel. The later in the Bible, he's listed as an example of faith. I actually believe that Barak is showing godly wisdom here. He recognized something. He recognized that God was with Deborah, that she had the power of the Spirit speaking through her. She was a spokesperson of God, from God, to the people of Israel. And so her response, her her role was to speak the response of Yahweh to these people who were crying out to Him. And so it could be that God even chose to use this woman out under this tree to to speak his wisdom, to speak his word to the people because it's an injunction against the leaders of Israel who had 
the, the priest had turned away from following Israel to follow after these other gods. So I, I think that instead of being a, a badge of, of cowardice here, I think that his request for Deborah to accompany him was a recognition that God was with her and that he desired the presence of God to be with him on the battlefield. And I think Deborah affirms this by agreeing to go with him and by saying that the Lord will deliver them to you. So, you may disagree with that, and that's okay. But that's what I believe is going down here. So Barak and Deborah go out to battle with 10,000 foot soldiers against Sisera's 900 iron chariots. Now, we can easily read over that. 10,000 versus 900. Easy, right? But there's something here that we miss because these iron chariots were about like tanks in World War I. This was something that was a new technology that was powerful. In fact, the, these iron chariots would easily mow down these 10,000-foot soldiers. And so, despite these great odds against Israel... These two tribes of Israel, along with with Barak, stood ready to attack. But then notice what happens in verses 14 through 16. Verses 14 through 16. Deborah said to Barak, Move on, for this is the day the Lord has handed Sisera over to you. Hasn't the Lord gone before you? So Barak came down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following. The Lord threw Sisera all his charioteers and all his army into confusion with the sword before Barak. Sisera left his chariot and fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harasheth of the nations, and the whole army of Sisera fell by the sword. Not a single man was left. Now, I think it would be easy for us to miss what happened here if we don't read the next chapter. The next chapter is a poem that is sung by Deborah, and sung by Barak. And it gives us a little more information. It tells us that it wasn't simply a charge against Sisera. He doesn't just see these 10,000 men and women coming down to fight him, and it scares him to death, and he runs off. That is not what happened. But what he saw was the power of God working against him. These iron chariots were poised, ready to fight in this valley. It was the dry season. But all of a sudden, a torrential rainstorm comes off the river into these chariots, and all of a sudden, their their wheels and their horses' hooves get stuck in the mud. They describe it as the stars fell down from heaven, and the wind swept from the river, a torrential storm that overtook them. And so, really, here's what I think of. It makes me think of the Egyptians when they were pursuing the Israelites. And the Lord had separated the waters of the Red Sea for the Israelites to walk across. And as soon as they got across and the Egyptians started to chase after them, what happened? The waters came back together and they were defeated. This is what I think happened. They just watched as this great storm came and made the instruments 
of the Canaanites' strength, their weakness. Because that's what God does. He turns our strengths into our weaknesses and our weaknesses into our strengths. So these horses' hooves, chariots' wheels stuck in the mud, and so the Israelites with their 10,000 soldiers come down, and these cavalry units are stuck, they can't go anywhere, so the people are fleeing, and they easily slaughter them. But Sisera, their general, escaped, and he went into the tent of Heber, or Heber, the Kenite. Heber had an alliance with Sisera. We see that he had planted himself in a position where he could feed troop movements. He was a spy, essentially. So he was an ally. His, his house was a place of safety, right? It was an allied house, right? It was. But look with me at what happens in verse 18. This is Jael, or Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Jael went out to greet Sisera and said to him, Come in, my lord. Come in with me and don't be afraid. So he went into her tent. She covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. She opened a container of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him again. Then he said to her, Stand at the entrance to the tent. If a man comes and asks you, Is there a man here? Say no. And then, verse 21, he fell asleep because he was tired from running. So, Heber's wife, this ally of Sisera, takes care of Sisera. She took the lead in this. She spoke words of comfort to him and seemed to be showing the customary signs of hospitality in the ancient Near East. She covered him with a blanket, which would effectively hide him and warm him. She gave him some milk to drink. Notice he asked for water. She gave him milk. Why? What do you give kids at night when they can't go to sleep? Give them some warm milk. So she gave him some milk, covered him with a blanket. He goes off to sleep because he's been running and he's tired. He had been worried that the enemy was going to capture him, but now he had found safety. And he found even more safety by asking her that if Anybody comes by and asks if I'm in here looking for an enemy, just tell him no. So he feels secure. He falls asleep. But then notice what happens in verse 21. While he was sleeping from exhaustion, Heber's wife, Jael, took a tent peg and grabbed a hammer and went silently to Sisera. She hammered the peg into his temple and drove it into the ground, and he died. Really? Is that necessary? Do we have to add, and he died? I'm pretty sure a tent stake to the temple is going to kill you. But how gruesome is that? Right? What a way to go out. And it sounds pretty bad to us today. It's not a way we want to go out. But consider the humiliation that's here that we don't see. Because in that time... It was the woman's duty to set up and take down the tents. And so the mallet and the tent stake were considered household appliances. So essentially, this great, mighty general was killed by a toaster oven. By a woman and her household appliance, not in the glory of a battle. So when Barak comes by, 
We see in the rest of this chapter that Jael takes him in and shows him the dead men in her tent. And the people of Israel defeat the king of Jabin. And if we look over to 5 and verse 31, it says, There was peace in the land for 40 years. 40 years. One generation. Okay, so we looked at three stories and we're running out of time. We looked at three big stories, many stories within an overall narrative. So what are some things that we can pull out of all three of these stories and apply to our lives today? What do these have in common? Why are they grouped together? What are these common elements for us today? Well, first of all, there's the wrath of God concept. The wrath of God. Every time that Israel was disobedient to God, there came a penalty. The first of the Ten Commandments says, You shall keep no other gods before me. And yet over and over and over again, they failed to keep this first commandment. And for that disobedience, God poured out his wrath on them. And we don't like to think about God as being wrathful. We don't like to think of God in our 21st century American Christianity as God being just and bringing punishment upon his people. We rightly claim that God is love, but our idea of love is not the Bible's idea of love because we think that God's love and his punishment can't go together when the reality is they can't. It's a false dichotomy. But in fact, God's punishment is used in judges as a means to bring Israel back to his way. And we're going to talk more about that in just a moment. But first, we are much like these Israelites. We are a lot like them because every one of us have failed to keep that first commandment. Every one of us have failed to keep God first in our lives. We have failed to keep God's law, and because of that, we are under condemnation because of our sin. Human sin is the curse of death. We all have experienced the loss of a loved one. It hurts. It's not natural. It's not the way that God intended for it to be. God brought life and our sin brought death. That is the punishment for our sins. And one day we'll all die. In fact, Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. And in the end of days, God's wrath will be poured out on all sinners. Every single one of us will be judged and found to be lacking. For we have all fallen short of the glory of God. So we have the wrath of God. But notice also we see a recurrence where they repent of their sin. They repent of their sin. Israel would experience the punishment, but this punishment was redemptive. If there's no punishment for sin, then there's no incentive to stop sinning. There's no incentive to turn from our sin. And so when God sends his punishment... It may take Israel some time before they get around to it, but eventually they repent and they call out to God. They endure his wrath for a time, but eventually they turn and come back to him. And so the threat of God's wrath being poured out on them causes them to repent and turn back to God. Well, we've just seen that because of our sin, we are under wrath. We are children under wrath. And the the threat of God's wrath being poured out on us, should cause you to repent. It should cause you to turn from your disobedience and turn from your disloyalty to God. 
You should stop worshiping whatever idol it is, whether it be your, your job or your, your money or your toys or your, your family, maybe even just yourself and your selfishness. Whatever is keeping you from having God first place in your life should turn and repent from that. Repentance is more than just turning away from something. It's more than just guilty feelings, but it's turning toward God and away from those other things. It's turning toward God and aligning your mindset with God's mindset, realizing that God is creator and worthy of all honor and glory, and you are sinful and worthy of nothing but condemnation. It's turning toward God and aligning your heart with his heart and your mind with his mind. Ezekiel 18.32 says, For I take no pleasure in anyone's death. This is the declaration of the Lord. So he says, Repent and live. And because of that repentance, we see the salvation of God. Salvation of God. Whenever Israel would repent, God would raise up a deliverer. First it was Othniel, then Ehud. Then God used Deborah and Barak and Jael to save his people. And this shows us, I think, the truth of Judges. It's not a story about men and women who rise up to save Israel. It's not a story about these micro-heroes of the, of the faith. But it's a story about one hero overall. God is the hero who is saving his people from his wrath. God is the hero of the story. The people of the Israel are both the victims and the villains. They're both the victims and the villains because of their own sin, their own villainy. They are dealing with the problems that come from that. All those other nations that we read about, we don't know much about them. They're just There is a foil for us to measure Israel against, to see how much they have become like the other nations, and for us to see how God uses even evil nations, pagan nations, to accomplish his will. So each time God would raise up a judge, a deliverer, and once they had been freed, the, the judge, the deliverer, didn't take the glory for himself. He said, it was the Lord who provided the victory. It was the Spirit of God within me that accomplished what needed to be accomplished. They realized that this was not of their doing. It was the Lord who did it through them. They realized they could only totally depend on God to save them. And the only way that you can be saved from your sin is to place your faith totally and completely in God. There's nothing that you can do to earn your own salvation, just as there's nothing that Israel could do to defeat their enemies. You're as completely helpless in your sin as they were. It is only through a divinely raised deliverer that you can be delivered from the curse of death. And so God sent his only begotten son, not only raising him up as a man, but also having him die, a man who had never sinned, the God-man. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin and for mine, but then God not only raised him up once, but he raised him up a second time, for after he died, he was resurrected from the grave. 
He is truly the divinely raised deliverer that you need in your life. And when we recognize that there's nothing that you and I bring to the table, we can sing the song of Rock of Ages, that line that says, Nothing in my hand I bring, but simply to thy cross I cling. That's where we need to be. I bring nothing before you, Lord, except for my sin. The only act I have in gaining my own salvation is bringing the sin that caused it to be needed. And it is only through Jesus that I can be saved. Understand, Jesus is the hero of the story. God sent him to die as the punishment for your sin and to be resurrected from the dead to give you victory over the curse of sin. Salvation is solely of God. It's God's gift to you. Romans 6.23 says, But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Salvation is the gift of God. But it's not the only gift of God. For once you accept Christ, God gives not only the gift of eternal life to you, but he also gives his spirit to you. And that spirit gives spiritual gifts to those who follow him. Now each of these judges were empowered by the spirit of God to do the work of delivering and leading the people of Israel. Now in the Old Testament, whenever we see the spirit of the Lord, it comes upon an individual. And that individual is empowered by the Spirit to accomplish great works. But then when we get into the New Testament, we see that through Christ, when you place your faith and trust in Christ, the Spirit comes upon each and every believer. It comes upon the whole group. It's not just one individual, but all who receive the Holy Spirit. And He gives each believer gifts that empowers them for the work of ministry. And these gifts are to be used for God's purposes. So if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, you must be faithful to use your giftedness that God has given you to accomplish his work. In our final story, we see that God had gifted three different leaders with different abilities. They weren't worried about who gets the credit. Barak said, I don't care that a woman gets the credit. They were concerned more, at least Barak and Deborah, were concerned more with God getting the credit. And so they used their, their different gifts, his military leadership and her prophet status to bring the purpose of God to fruition so that God got the glory. And that's the way the church must function. We must work together using God's gifts to bring him glory. Notice also that God was present with the judges just as he is present with his people today. So no matter how Hopeless our situation may seem, God never stops working for the good of those who love him. <coughs> he never stops working for the good of those who believe and trust in us on Jesus. But the last thing I want you to notice is the peace of God. The peace of God. At the end of each of these stories, there's a temporary peace. And that peace generally lasts until the good judge has died. So the end of the, each story isn't peace. The end of each story is death. And there's an implication there for us. The implication is that God's people need a leader who would not die. Throughout the book of Judges, we see over and over again 
Those leaders died, and the people went right back into their sin. But eventually, someone came who, yes, he did die, but now he lives forevermore. Revelation 1 and verse 18 calls Jesus the living one. He says, I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. See, human beings were created to have peace with God. God created us for fellowship with him, but sin came and destroyed that peace that we had. And it still does for anyone who refuses Jesus' offer of salvation. However, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved if they confess Jesus as Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. Then Jesus is the only way to God and you're willing to surrender your life to him to make him your Savior and your Lord, you can have peace with God. So here's my question for you this morning. Do you have peace with God, or are you living in enmity with him? Have you accepted Jesus as your deliverer? Have you accepted him as your judge? Have you accepted him as your God? And if you haven't, you can call out to him today. You can repent and believe, and you will be saved. And if you're here and you have made that decision, are you living like you've made that decision? Are you using the spiritual gifts that God has given you to bring others into the kingdom of God, to serve his church, to minister to the needs of those in his kingdom? Are you faithfully serving the Lord where he's placed you. Let me have you stand with me. I'm going to have a time.